0: Well, turn back with me, if you would, to chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, and this week we have verses 12 to 31. Paul continues, For just as the human body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we are all baptized into one body." Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greatest honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with the greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed or... Blended the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the many members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you all... Are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating or government, and various kinds of tongues or languages. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing, Do all speak with tongues, to all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Well, what if we could see the world as it really is? Have you ever thought of how strange that would be? You're brushing your teeth in the morning or doing whatever it is you do in the bathroom in that one moment of peace when you're allowed to shut the kids out of your life. And whenever you look up to your terror, there's some massive burning angel sitting on the edge of the bath, just watching. <laughs> it would be a nightmare, wouldn't it, living like that? Seeing the world as it really is would shatter so much of the tame protection of the walls that we've tried to build up around our lives, what would things look like right now, do you think, if we could see everything that was true? One mercy this year was that the nursery sports day was a slightly more restrained affair than normal. The dangerous moment is always the three-legged race where father and son run tied together. Because in Blackhall, for whatever reason, some of the parents are so ridiculously competitive that, for any reasonable health and safety inspector, it would be called off. Grown men sprinting those 30 meters with all of their might, forgetting one crucial thing. They have a three-year-old boy tied to their leg. Sometimes I can still hear the poor nursery teacher frantically blowing her whistle, trying to stop the race as these little toddlers are literally dragged along the ground. I wonder if that's what we would see if we looked around here and we saw everything as it really is. If we could look at church like that, I wonder if we'd notice a lot more ropes around our legs. It might be an invisible spiritual reality, but we are far, far more connected than we realize. Verses 12 to 14 of our passage tell us that if you have trusted in Jesus, then something utterly extraordinary has happened to you. Something that I doubt any of us take seriously enough. You've not ceased to be you. You never will because Jesus made you. But you have completely and utterly ceased to be an autonomous individual. You've been fused spiritually but inseparably, to millions of others. Really, these verses there are recapping and developing what we've read so far in 1 to 11. We saw there that every Christian, every last human being who confesses Jesus as Lord, is a spiritual. The message again and again was that everything we have, all of us, came from one shared Holy Spirit. And because we share one spirit, says Paul, well, we belong to one body, the body of Jesus. When we trusted him and were baptized, we were baptized into his body. The spirit was uniting us to him. It's what our baptism seals and signifies. When we drink Jesus' cup together, then just like the Israelites in the wilderness back in chapter 10, verse 4, we are sharing a spiritual drink one that fuses us to our Lord. And if all of us individually are fused to him, then we are fused to one another. He is the head, chapter 11. We are the body, chapter 12. It means that no matter how great the divide once was, ethnic, social, personal, Jew or Greek, rich or poor, strong or weak, Something inescapable happens if we want to share in Jesus Christ. We are bound together. And not just that, but verse 14, we're bound into a kind of thing that demands differences. The thing we find our togetherness in, if we want to be part of this body, it isn't uniformity. It's the spirit who every one of us participates in just as much as any other. Just as a body needs different parts, a church needs different kinds of people. It's not an accident we're like this. It's what God is doing in his gospel, uniting the broken and the fractured in his son Jesus. And so Paul takes this metaphor of the human body, one that we're so familiar with, but He uses it to show the Corinthians how much of that spiritual reality they have failed to see. Notice what an extraordinary thing he says at the start of all this. As it is with the human body, so it is with, well, not the church, not even Christ's body, so it is with Christ. That is who we are sitting here. It's a figure of speech called a metonymy where one thing stands for another, but what an incredibly big thing he chooses. God's church, us lot, are the embodiments of Jesus for our world. This is the place where the deepest bonds of friendship and dependence and love on earth form around Jesus himself between people with nothing else in common but his spirit, given graciously, and Jesus is displayed. So before we go any further, let's just marvel at that, at what a high and beautiful calling that is. In an age that is defined by its loneliness and its isolation and its individualism, We're called to be the place where Jesus' love for his people is seen in real terms. So connected that it hurts when one of us hurts. What could be more attractive in our world? Some people will pick up the Bible and they will fall in love with Jesus as they meet him in a gospel. And we bank a lot of confidence on that, don't we? But it's not how it works for everyone. Some people will come out of the cold into this beautiful, messy, living organism that is his church, and they will fall in love with Jesus when they meet him in his people. And I wonder if we're as confident in that truth. This is the Holy Spirit's masterpiece. This is where he's drawing God the Son out of bankers and addicts and Children and pensioners and single moms. And if we don't see that, then we will always be tempted towards a kind of spirituality that's about just me and my Bible and Jesus. That is always the temptation in our age. A form of Christianity where we value people in the way the Corinthians did, according to their usefulness, their spiritual knowledge, their gifting according to our pet measure of their spirituality. But that is not the picture God the Holy Spirit is painting in this room. It's not what our world needs to see. Part of how God saves us out of our fractured age is by teaching us to think we, not me. God deals with us as a people. He deals with us in covenant, represented by one king, one head. Almost all of the Bible is written like that, isn't it? It's written to a people. It doesn't speak to you and me as individuals. It speaks to a body. And Paul's message today is that when we see how deeply connected we truly are, then a lot of the ways us Christians tend to think and speak just become absurd i'm sure you can think of all sorts of examples of individualistic thinking and talk about church paul gives us two here as he plays with this metaphor one example in each big paragraph because it's thinking that is old as sin itself it's always been there in every church and notice how like this whole unit of the book the focus here is on speech individualistic things people say each time we get a little example of that individualistic speech. And then he uses the body metaphor quite playfully to show how absurd that way of thinking is before closing each paragraph with a lesson about what God is actually doing through his church. First, in verses 15 to 20, he talks to those of us who think like the foot And I guess in a church like Corinth, a lot of us might have felt like them when certain people and certain gifts are held really high and others are seen as barely spiritual at all. How easy would it be to feel unvalued, disposable? The foot and the ear, they are the they don't need me people. And I think Paul's message to them is, is deeply freeing. God values you for more than your usefulness. I wonder if that's a message we need to hear. We're part of a culture and a church culture, I think, that is enormously task-orientated. We're very focused on growth, especially in our own circles, our conservative evangelical circles. It's why we're here, isn't it? To spread the gospel, to share God's good news. But we tend to go about that in a way that prizes doing over being. Staff the right programs, run the right courses, invite the right people, and the kingdom will grow. Sometimes it's as if we think if there's no Christianity explored course running, then there's no evangelism happening. Now, God has used all of that work in wonderful ways, but it can leave us with a very utilitarian model of church as if we were just a colony of worker ants, rather than a body or a family, or a hospital for the broken. And if I'm not the sort of person who can help lead Christianity explored, well am I really any use to that colony? Now, in Corinth, it was same but different. There were still a limited number of gifts that people valued and counted as spiritual. Everybody wanted to be a busy hand, not a lowly foot. In their case, it seems it was the gift of tongues above everything which marked out the really spiritual ones. They wanted to be a church where everyone had something to say and where even the angels had to listen. But if you were one of the feet a helper, a quiet encourager, someone whose only obvious gift was a friendly smile and a warm prayer life. Well, how long before you started to feel discouraged and then withdrawn and finally jealous and discontent? And of course, it's absurd to all wish we were someone else, verse 17. A body can't work like that. We need to understand what God is doing in his church. He has arranged us, verse 18, exactly as we are. It's not an accident. You didn't slip through quality control when God was handing out the gifts. We're not meant to all be the same. Our loving Father didn't hand out good things to his people because some of us deserved more and others less. It wasn't because he values some of us more and others less. It wasn't based on our ability or on any sort of innate potential. No, verse 18, he arranged us as he chose, according to nothing other than his good pleasure. So if we were all the same, well, it would destroy what God is building Imagine if the whole church was one massive schnoz of a nose. It's funny but grotesque, isn't it? Because verse 19, if that was us, there would be no church. We wouldn't be a body anymore. We'd be a monstrosity, like some grisly experiment, an ear grafted onto the back of a rat. We're not meant to be like that. If everyone in church spoke tongues or preached sermons or ran Christianity Explored, we would be a monstrosity. So don't ever talk like the foot. We don't need to do that. We don't need to say to ourselves in our quiet moments, I don't really add anything to Edinburgh North Church because I lack the gifts God really uses. Do you see how that denigrates what God's Spirit is doing. He put you here as you. Our value to him is not all wrapped up in our usefulness. On Tuesday morning, we will hold the funeral for a little boy who added something to this church family that it would be impossible ever to put a number on. Where would that utilitarian worker-ant model of church have left little Matthew. He didn't serve, he needed one to one care. Sometimes his dad wondered if bringing him along would be a burden to us. But the truth couldn't have been more different, could it? Just by being with us as often as he was able, he gave more to this picture of what church is meant to be than we will ever know. Something rich and beautiful and real that God thought we needed and only Matthew could give. Isn't God's purpose for church so much more beautiful and deep than our own? It means the shy old pensioner does not need to be the bubbly young student. The brand new Christian who's just figuring it all out doesn't need to be the dynamic Sunday school teacher. That isn't what Jesus' body looks like. In his love, God has kept all sorts of good things from every one of us. And thank God for that. Thank God that he has not given me all the things that I think I need. But he has given us all sorts of good things, hasn't he, to enjoy that only we can bring to this church. And if we take this body thing seriously, then it means that I have no right to hold back what he's given me or to resent them. Our very selves belong to one another. Not just our skills, but our being. God values you for more than your usefulness. And then in verses 21 to 26, we get a a different kind of crazy talk. Now it's the eye and the head speaking. Not the they-don't-need-me sort of people. These are the I-don't-need-them people. People who saw their own gifting as far more valuable and others in church as replaceable. But they have something, too, to learn from this picture, don't they? It's that God's work in you goes far deeper than your usefulness. There is more to being a Christian than having the right gifts and leading a mighty ministry. That is not what it's about. Maybe you're someone with a big position in the world. Monday to Friday, you're a GP or a business owner or a university lecturer. Maybe you have the sort of gifting and role that just seems much more valued and praised in church. Well, it's easy for those of us like that to begin to think, that we are more independent than we truly are. Church needs me, but I don't really need them. Notice, once again, there's a very Corinthian flavor to Paul's language here. Look at the words he uses. Weaker, as opposed to the strong and the spiritual. That's a Corinthian word, isn't it? Those we think less honorable less presentable in a church where everyone wanted to be at the front. There's more than a whiff of snobbery about this, isn't there? And if we're honest, any gospel church will have its share of the Lord's peculiar people, the less presentable ones, the ones we secretly pray, don't pin down our friend in the corner the first Sunday we bring them along, the ones we're just slightly embarrassed to be identified with, the ones we know our colleagues would sneer at. So it doesn't take much for those of us who are used to being important and impressive to slip into a kind of thinking that's actually pretty dismissive of others. They can't see the big picture like I see it. How could they without all my years of training and experience? They just lack my nuance, the others at church, my thoughtfulness, I wish they were someone else. But that whole way of speaking, verse 22, once again, it makes no sense when you think in terms of a body. You might be some hulking, muscle-bound rugby player like Pete Dixon. But one poke in the eye and you will crumple like a little girl, fall into a heap and be no use to anyone. There are parts of our body that seem weak, and we cannot cope without them. There are parts of our body which seem humble, like sweaty feet, and yet we soak them in a hot bath at the end of the day, and we cover them in lotions and potions. There are parts of our body we don't display to the world, but we treat them with the greatest honor of all. We wrap them up, protect them, and keep them for ourselves. And verse 24, God has composed this body, the church, to make it just the same. Literally, he's mixed us, blended us in a way that prizes all sorts of people who the world would devalue and ignore. And yet we are so blended together, verse 25, that there can't be any divide. Division in a body means necrosis and death. If a limb is cut off... It can't survive, can it? And just like that, God has made each one of us far more dependent on everyone else than it might seem. Because he's doing far, far more through this church than just making use of us. This body is a huge part of his plan to redeem us, to fit us for heaven. One of the classic ways historic Christianity has understood sin is as human beings curving in on ourselves. Our hearts are like the root of a pot plant, all wrapped up around our own concerns and anxieties and demands. But look how God has made this body to be, verse 25. He has blended us together so that each has the same care for one another. One family goes through hell, and all of us weep. One member finds a job after months of disappointment, and all of us rejoice. So that through being joined to this body, God is turning us outwards towards each other. They say that a parent can only ever be as happy as their least happy child. Isn't exactly the same thing true in church? If you don't believe that or you've never seen that, it might just be that you have been the unhappy child. You have no idea how many others are praying for you and trying to love you and make things better. And that is the real sign of a spirit-filled church. Not that everyone is filled with the same monoclonal, bland, identical gift but that everyone is living and growing together in Jesus. There's no other way for a Christian to be nourished, cut off from the body, you will wither. And the more self-sufficient we are, the more important it is we realize that. Church is not one of our many things where we come and do our jobs and consume a product and top ourselves up. It's a body we depend on. Nobody here is dispensable to your spiritual health. And so finally, in verses 27 to 31, thinking we, not me, teaches us to love God's value system. My hunch is that if you've been reading this letter carefully, the last verse here came as a bit of a shock. Earnestly desire the higher gifts, the greater gifts. Well, hang on a minute. I thought there were no gifts that were more or less important. I thought we said last week there's not even really a category called spiritual gifts, as if others are somehow less spiritual. So how after all of that can he go and say this? Let me say if that bugs you, you are asking exactly the right questions. And I think it's a clue that our me thinking gets in the way even as we read these words. When we read these words as if they were addressed to us as lone ranger Christians, you can imagine Paul saying something like this. Some of you are helpers in God's church, and that's great, but aspire to the stuff you lack, the higher stuff. Aspire to being a teacher or a prophet or someone who speaks in the tongues of angels. But it rubs against everything this big unit has said, doesn't it? What if we read those words, though, as addressed to a whole church? A church who he said right back in chapter 1, verse 7 lack no gift of God's grace whatsoever. Well, clearly, he isn't telling them to desire something they're missing because they aren't missing a thing. So, what is he telling them? He's telling them to value what God values. Throw away your Corinthian value system, which is all about the stuff that marks you out as a spiritual person, and learn to value what God values. That earnestly desire word, it's the one we get our English word zeal from. And maybe that would have been a more helpful way of putting it. He's not saying desire something you lack. He's saying be zealous for stuff you already have but don't seem to love all that much. Notice how this section begins from verse 27. All of you together make up Christ's body, and for the third time we're told, God has made it so. God is the one who appointed our place within it, whatever that place is. He's designed his church so that there's an intrinsic equality. It's one body belonging to Jesus, But at the same time, it seems like there's some sort of intrinsic ordering. It's a body made of parts that fit together in a certain way. First, apostles. Second, prophets. You Corinthians might not value them much, but they built the foundations you depend on. Third, teachers. And then, miracles. Then, gifts of healing and helping and all sorts of other wonderful examples. No one has all the gifts. You can't all be miracle workers. But together, you Corinthians have the lot in this body of yours. Do you value it all? Fast forward one chapter, and Paul will open with that same eagerly desire word. Yes, be zealous for the things of the Spirit, he tells them, but especially the stuff which builds up others because that is what God's gifts are for. If there's an ordering expressed here, it's to do with which gifts most explicitly serve the common good. It's not that the people who do those jobs have any more of the Spirit, or any more importance. Every gift, he said, is there for others. But the Corinthians were using certain gifts to do the opposite. And there were other things which a church family depends on that they treated as disposable. That will be the whole argument of chapter 14. Learn to value those things which build up everyone. But in between comes the most famous chapter in the Bible a stinging rebuke about the Corinthians' lack of love. How can we be, how can we be Jesus' body? if the thing that's missing is love. But put that back in the picture. When we think about our place here in church, and that whole ludicrous concept of our usefulness goes out the window, doesn't it? Every Christian is bound to him in one spirit, and so every Christian is loved. And every Christian is indispensable. Jesus doesn't have spiritual favorites. He doesn't have buddies. He has a body bought through love. And that is a far more excellent way. Well, let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus Christ, would we be a body that looks like our heads? marked by the very deepest bonds of love and dependence upon each other and unity in diversity? Would every one of us know how deeply we are valued and loved by your Father in your name? And would every one of us learn to think of each other in the same way? Forgive us, Lord, where we fail to do that. Turn us out from ourselves, we pray. That when the world sees us, it might see you and marvel at your sheer beauty and grace. Amen.